You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love More Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. Successful entrepreneurs are givers and not takers of positive energy. That's an anonymous quote, and I want to welcome you. I, I This morning I, I have this... Um, I have like this little Snoopy typing on the typewriter, being that I'm a writer with the, uh, uh, he's on his doghouse, and you can, it's like a calendar. You just turn the months and the days. I said, oh, my goodness, it's the middle of November already. You guys, I really encourage you as we come down the home stretch of 2020, despite everything that's happened this year, you can still make this a phenomenally good year for yourself. I encourage you to to take those steps to do that even now. And then today, our author, the guest that we have on, can offer you such a healthy dose of entertainment uh, this morning. So I want to welcome you to our November the 14th, 2020 show. And for our loyal listeners, thank you for being here with us for 16 years. And if it's your first time listening to Off the Shelf, i got to let you know that you are listening to the winning book radio show off the shelf. Two things I want to ask you. How important is self-care to you? Do you practice awareness so you can become aware of when you're starting to to make decisions that might be leading you away from joy and peace, uh, feeling loved and maybe even loving yourself? That is so important to catch yourself early and then choose again, make another choice. And there are techniques in a a book I recently released, Awaken Blessings of Inner Love, Shortcuts to Self-Care Techniques to Lead to Success in a Busy World. Our world's so busy. But every single day it's important to take care of yourself because we don't know what's coming. As I was telling somebody on the interview yesterday, if you don't practice daily self-care, if you don't practice awareness and catch yourself early, something could come around the corner and literally knock you out. It's just like a good boxer. you got to stay in shape, practice awareness, stay sharp, and know when to pivot and shift and choose again. You made a mistake, okay, choose again and go a different way. So that's the first thing. I, I asked you, and I, again, a helpful book, Awaken Blessings of Inner Love by Denise Turney. I encourage you to pick up a copy. It's an e-book or in print. And also, you mystery sleuths, those of you who value romance and you like relationships, one day I'm going to do a, another reading from Love Pour Over Me here on Off the Shelf. But I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. This is fiction. The first book is nonfiction. This is fiction. It's in ebook and in print format as well. You can get it on Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Walmart, Kobo, Target, Google Books, you name it. Just go get yourself a copy of one or both of the books today and start reading them and see how they bless your life. And now let us go and meet our very special off the shelf guest. And our special off the shelf guest this morning is Jeff. Rosley, hopefully I said his name correctly. Jeff makes his home in Indianapolis. His first published work was a poem that was published in the Hanover College Fine Arts Journal. That's pretty impressive. He's an avid traveler. In fact, 
Jeff leads Himalayan treks and mountaineering expeditions. He has scuba dived throughout the Caribbean and sea kayaked in Palo Tonga and the Greek Isles. He is also an avid social activist. He earned his Bachelor of Arts from the University of Chicago. He was a ladder winner in swimming and football, and he has also earned a JD from Indiana University Law School. To date, Jeff has authored 10 books, which include Polarized, Hero's Journey, Island Adventures, Bringing Progress to Paradise, and False Prophet. You guys can hop on over to his website now and check him out, jeffreyrosley.com, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-R-A-S-L-E-Y.com. And again, that's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-R-A-S-L-E-Y.com. We are absolutely honored to have Jeff with us on Off the Shelf this morning. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Jeff. Thank you, Denise. <clears throat> it is good to be with you the day after Friday the 13th. <laughs> yes, it is. And you know what? Nothing happened. I never really believed in that, but some people do. And uh, But, uh, yes, good to be here on November the 14th. So the first two questions that I'm going to ask you, I ask every guest who comes on the show, and I generally tell our guests when I started off the shelf years and years ago, we were on Rainbow So I would just go right into the questions and listeners would send me emails. Please don't do that. Please let us t- tell us a little about the guests before you start talking about their books. So to begin, could you tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? <laughs> I grew up <clears throat> in Goshen, Indiana, which when I was growing up, the population was about 10,000 it's now about 35,000, so the <clears throat> the population growth has been really dramatic um, because of the RV industry. But it was a small town. Um, most everybody knew, most everybody else. Uh, I had one brother who was just 14 months older than me uh, who beat me up regularly. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> usually in good fun. Um, but I played lots of sports, uh, love sports. We lived, after I was seven years old, uh, on a, a small river, and so I got to love anything to do with water. Um, I became a competitive swimmer and did kayaking and scuba diving, like you mentioned, and um, so part of that just developed to be safe growing up right uh, on a river. Um, But so, you know, life was very much like sort of a Tom Sawyer, like small town, uh, semi-rural life, you know, catching frogs and turtles and fishing and uh, small school. So, uh, you know, all the sort of typical things when we were teenagers of getting into trouble and staying out of trouble. racing cars so but it uh you know having a very secure base i think prepared me well to go out into life uh be adventurous um open to a lot of different experiences and so that's how i've tried to live so let me ask you thanks for sharing um 
I, when I was in the Navy, I was stationed in Indiana. How far, I wasn't in Bloomington, I was about 45 minutes from Bloomington, but how far, Indiana has so many small states, it's like new cities, it's like New Jersey. How mm-hmm. how far is Goshen from Bloomington? Well, Goshen is at the very top of the state. It's just um, about 12 miles below the Michigan line. So, you know, Bloomington, you know, Indianapolis is right in the middle, and Bloomington is southwest of Indy. Um, and so Goshen is almost due north from Indy. Oh, uh, okay, okay. When you were a kid growing up, I used to love to read the, 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 the Mark Twain and the Tom Sawyer books. As a kid, when you, when you were a little boy, what did you dream of being when you grew up? <laughs> Uh, a sports star. <laughs> One of my favorite um, books uh, or series of books was called the Chip Hilton Sports Series. And I've actually, one of my books called Hero's Journey uh, describes my my love of um, of reading those books and the character of Chip Hilton, who was just the, you know, the perfect boy um, and so <clears throat> I, I wanted to, you know, be like Chip um, until I was a teenager and then decided Chip was kind of a drip because he, he never did anything wrong, never got into trouble. Uh, so missed out on a lot of the fun of adolescence. But, yeah, as a little kid, I just, you know, I loved sports and, and thought, uh, the greatest life in the world would be like being an NFL quarterback or a, a NBA point guard. Um, but unfortunately, my athletic ability uh, falls far short of that level. Oh, but see, you still you still did pretty good. You know, the, the, the achievements you did make in with the swimming and the other sports that you played. Who? So where you you enjoyed reading these books about Chip? Who or what inspired? Was it those books? Who got you into reading books? Where did the, your passion for, for writing and reading books come from? Well, I grew up in a family that was um, very much in the newspaper business. Um, my grand, my step-grandfather was the editor of our local paper, the Goshen News. Oh. Um, my mom... Uh, became the city editor. She was a reporter there. Um, And my stepfather became the editor following my step-grandfather. So I was around journalist writers uh, growing up all the time and and really loved going down to the newspaper and just seeing how things work there. But uh, also I had uh, in Goshen some really great uh, English and literature teachers um, who loved literature and you know just reading the books that we were assigned in school um, I I almost liked I mean I liked almost every book we ever had to read and in the summer our library had this program where if you read 20 books during the summer you got a little ribbon and so you know a few summers I did that and even though I love being outdoors and love playing sports there was also that you know solitary side of me that could just lose myself uh, in a book. 
So, so you, I think that I find that fascinating. I mean, I love to read, and I started writing when I was ten years old. So, you, your family's involved in this newspaper, uh, uh, local, the local newspaper. How old were you when you knew for certain that you were going to be a writer? Um, I, I mean, writing uh, was always important to me from. From the time I was in junior high school, I started writing poetry, which was probably pretty bad stuff, you know, kind of whiny adolescent (laughs) uh, kind of writing that uh, only my teachers uh, and best friends might have seen because, you know, nobody would publish it. Uh, but then in college, I got a little more serious, um, had, as, as you mentioned, uh, a few poems uh, published and a short story in college publications. And so uh, from that time on, it was something I always did, but it was never my primary focus until after I retired from law. So really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I as a I practiced law for 30 years and if if you're a lawyer and other than family, if law is not your primary focus, you're not going to do very well. And I was you know, I wanted to do very well and and law was very good to me and because of the financial success I had in law and business and investing, I was able to retire at 56 and then, you know, make writing more of a primary focus. And so I I had my first book published uh, the year I retired. But before that, I wrote a lot of articles that were published, but, you know, just didn't have the time uh, to devote to a full length book. Oh, and your articles were probably on on law, I'm guessing. Now, how much of your work? So you have a very interesting story. You, you, the character chip, you wanted to be in sports, whether a, a point guard in the NBA or a quarterback in the, in the NFL, and then you said no, and you went into law. Even though your family is running the local newspaper and you love to read, so – you have a very interesting story, and I'm sure our listeners, when I ask this next question, are going to probably be like, wow, this guy has really done a lot of things from sports to the books you read to the articles you've written to law. And so then this other question might throw some of our listeners off a little bit, but I wanted to ask you, how much of your work, your writing work, is affected by your experience of hitchhiking it's just almost amazing. I'm like, no, you couldn't have practiced law for 30 years, and then you hitchhike is is a, a lawyer to me. Just I don't know the image you have of a lawyer is just not someone who would do this. But how much of your work is affected by your experience of hitchhiking across the United States? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting you asked me that question today because I just um, finished sending off. Um, an op-ed article, to, and we'll see if it gets published or not, uh, about um, hitchhiking giving me a perspective on the polarization of our country. So when I was uh, 18, I hitchhiked from Goshen, Indiana, down to uh, Key West, Florida, so as far south wow. as you can go. 
And then the next year, when I was 19, with uh, a, a buddy, we hitchhiked from L.A. back to Goshen, Indiana, so as far west as you could go. And so I hitchhiked, you know, really virtually across the entire country within the space of a year in uh, 18 and 19. And it was an incredible experience. I mean, I met all kinds of people that I would have never met in Goshen, Indiana. I mean, just give, to give you an example of one amazing person, a guy in a red brand new Ferrari picks me up on I-65 um, north of uh, Birmingham, Alabama, uh, drives me all the way to Indiana. And this guy is in a Ferrari, but he has decided to model his life after Jesus. And every car we saw that seemed to have any trouble or anybody we saw along the way that needed help, we would stop. He would either give them money, we'd push them out of a snowbank, he'd buy them gas, we'd help them fix a flat tire. So we made rather slow progress. But, I mean, that's you, you just meet weird and amazing people. Um, and I wouldn't recommend hitchhiking to anybody because it could be dangerous. Yeah. But in all the, those miles I hitchhiked, I never – I had a couple – cars that I got into that I was a little worried and, and for a few minutes scared, but you know, I, I never had a bad experience. Um, and so it, it was very influential uh, in terms of opening me to just being willing to engage with people that were very different from me. So this piece I just wrote is uh, the the argument it makes is that Americans really at heart are very open, trusting people. Uh, and I believed that for a long time because of those experiences. But now the country's gotten so polarized that we we distrust people we disagree with and we you know demonize people we disagree with. And so um, my argument is that now with the new Biden-Harris administration and Joe Biden giving what I think was a really wonderful acceptance speech talking about the, the true character of Americans um, being open and trusting. Um, my hope is, and the encouragement of that article, is that we move back in that direction. So yeah. you know, it's just what a coincidence you asked me that question. Yeah, we we have to um, get back to uh, – and I think some of the focus, like – some corporations are doing uh, really focusing on encouraging people to bring their whole self to work, and whether you're in a wheelchair or you work and you have autism or you're blind or you're LGBT or whatever your background, some corporations are really having serious discussions, open, candid discussions. To we got to accept each other, and hopefully that might also help. But yeah, we. Just because somebody disagrees with you is not like you uh, doesn't mean you have to shut them out or, like you say, demonize them. Now, tell us about your book. So you had all these hitchhiking experiences, and I came up in a time when I know in the, I think it was the 70s. I was born in the 60s. I remember in the 70s when people used to hitchhike. You you need a ride to work. You just go out on the road and you'd hitchhike, and it was safe. And then it, then bad things started to happen, and they would say on the news, don't hitchhike, don't take, don't hitchhike for a ride. So the, things may have started changing 
even sooner than we might imagine. But tell us about your book, You Have to Get Lost. I love the title, You Have to Get Lost Before You Can Be Found. Yeah, thanks. Well, that's actually my second to last book because I just had another one uh, published last month. But You Have to Get Lost Before You Can Be Found is um, a series of um, adventures in the Himalayas. And it covers my uh, 25 years of um, trekking and climbing in the Himalayas, but introduces people to the culture of uh, Nepal and, and northern India, the Himalayan region, Tibet, and sort of describes what it's like to visit that area, what it's like to climb and trek. And then it, it's sort of the, the fundamental point of it is that being alone uh, and lost can be uh, scary, exciting, um, but ultimately meaning is always found within a community. And so the, the, the very last chapter in the book describes an experience where I actually got lost on a mountain. I was separated from my climbing team um, and fog rolled in and I, I really, visibility was so minimal. Yeah, I couldn't see. And so I spent um, eh, half a day. So from about uh, late morning until after uh, sundown, thrashing around, trying to find my way back to our base camp. And so it, it describes that feeling of desolation and anxiety oh being alone, and then how wonderful it is to be reunited with you know with your community. And so it's a very you know sort of poignant, um, extreme description of the value of community. So that's that's the underlying theme that is woven into the uh, adventure stories and the cultural and historical information um, that's provided through the book. Oh, my gosh. I would, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I would be, oh, my God. I can only imagine. Oh, I can just see myself lost. <laughs> like, oh, my God, screaming. <laughs> Calling people's names, I'm like, oh my god! And, every, and everywhere you go, you're like, oh no, that's not the way. And then you, oh god, yeah. no. And am I getting further and further away from them? It's like, oh my gosh. Uh, so tell us about your latest book, the, your, your most, your what's the title of your most recent book? And if you could tell us a little about that book. Sure, thanks. Uh, the title is Anarchist Republican Assassin, a political novel. So it's I've I've written of the eleven books I've written four novels and so you know I mostly write nonfiction and that's that's my background but I I, I like and as you do too you know I mean you're you're diverse uh, like me in your writing so you can understand that although you know fiction is very uh, or nonfiction is very meaningful because you're, you know, you're trying to tell the truth directly 
through nonfiction about something that's important to you, but you can also do that, you know, through a novel. And so that's what, what inspired this novel was the night after uh, the George Floyd murder by cop in Minneapolis. I saw images on TV of uh, Minneapolis and then other cities exploding from protests and riots. And it reminded me so much. It was just such a viscerally powerful memory of back in the late 60s and early 70s, seeing those very same images on TV and then um, uh, actually twice uh, and once when I was hitchhiking, I was in a protest that turned into a violent riot. And out of that, for some reason that I can't explain rationally, this character just popped into my mind and was, it was one of those things where the character was just so fully developed that I just, I started writing about this character and he was an anarchist revolutionary in the late sixties and early seventies. He was in the 1968 police riot in Chicago and eventually left the uh, anarchist um, sort of violent revolutionary movement to go to business school, got a business degree, became a very successful businessman, joined the Republican establishment in Indianapolis. And then he experiences the riots and protests following George Floyd's murder and enters a psychotic state and because he blames what's sort of gone wrong with the country on Donald Trump, uh, he wants to seek revenge against Trump in this psychotic state. And what happens next, I won't tell you because that's the sort of, there's two two mystery endings. And so what ah. happens with him is one, and then he has a young lawyer who's, who's trying to help him. And what happens with her as his lawyer is a, another mystery to be solved in the book. Okay. And what's the title again? Anarchist Republican Assassin. And is 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 the the his attorney? Are they a couple? Can you say that or no? Uh, no. In fact, one of the things that drives him into the, his psychotic state is his wife uh, of thirty some years just died, and oh. he's struggling with that when the pandemic hits, and he's all alone, and. Um, so this young, rather attractive attorney comes into his life, and there's definitely some sparks there. Oh, okay. Now, so you you're watching this, and this just this character. It's amazing how characters and books where they come from. It just came into your mind out of nowhere. That being, uh, I'm just curious. Was is this your first novel by, by any chance? No, it's my fourth novel. 
So how how long, being that this just came up out of nowhere, sometimes as a writer you have to work to create the story, and I've had to work hard on some. I get an idea, and then I'm like, eh, I don't know if I'm even sticking with it. I have to work so hard at it. And then some just come up like this for you. Was this a quick, easy, easy for you to create this novel? It it was amazingly quick and easy. It's the the fastest. Uh, I mean, in terms of time, that I've ever written a book. Like the the one before, you have to get lost before you can be found. Took a better part the better part of a year. Uh, this took about two and a half months. Yeah. <laughs> Some right. stories just they're just there. It's like I, <clears throat> they're on this like silver platter, and all you have to do is start typing or, or start writing. It's and it sounds very very interesting, and and timely for the things that you know the country is still dealing with. I want to go back to one of your other books. Um, when you were the, the acute mountain sickness that you had, was that a part of your book? You have to get lost before you get found. When you were lost there, were you? Uh, is that when you developed that acute mountain sickness? And what is that? Well, acute mountain sickness is high, or also called high altitude sickness. What it is physiologically is when you get into a, up to a high altitude, there's less oxygen in the air. And when you breathe in, inhale, oxygen is then um, goes into your red blood cells. The red blood cells, oxygenated, take that to your brain. And that the oxygen taken to your brain in your red blood cells is what really gives you functionality. Um, and so as there's less oxygen in the air, less oxygen is getting to your brain. And the body adapts to that. And so it will pump more red blood cells to your brain, but sometimes something will go wrong and it, it can't keep up. As you're losing oxygen, your body's not pumping enough uh, red blood cells to your brain, and then your, your brain starts shutting your body down. Um, so first you'll experience headaches from lack of oxygen, uh, then usually you'll experience nausea, and then the third stage is called ataxia, where you lose muscle control, and it becomes hard to walk, stand. And then the fourth stage is death. Um, and I, I have managed to get to the third stage uh, three different times, and it's, it's really awful. And what I eventually concluded is that even though I've loved being up in high altitudes in the mountains, I'm genetically predisposed to getting, yeah, uh, altitude sickness. Um, and so uh, Sir Edmund Hillary, you know, the greatest climber uh, of all time in some ways, first person along with Tenzing Norgay, his partner, to summit Mount Everest, uh, got it so bad once uh, he had a brain embolism and lung embolism almost almost killed him. And so he had to quit uh, climbing because of that. Uh, but so, yeah, it's a, it's a really terrible feeling. But the thing is, there's a real easy cure for it. As soon as you experience those headaches, all you have to do 
is go down, you lose altitude, and you wait a day or two, your body will adjust to it, and then you can resume uh, going back up. The trouble is when you're in a, a, on a climbing team, on an expedition, <clears throat> everything is, it, there's a schedule. Everything is scheduled. So if you have to go, go back down and lose a couple days, you're off schedule. So <clears throat> because climbers are usually type A personalities who want to get to the top, you know, who are very kind of driven, uh, we tend not to want to go down and we keep going up when we should be going down and then we get into trouble. And I've done that <laughs> stupidly. Oh. Uh, but have managed to live to tell the tale and write about it in in that book. Well, you sound like a, a. I have the my bias around attorneys. I have to. You're really, really shattering them. <laughs> oh my God! I just can't believe that you practiced law for thirty years. Um, can you share two before we talk about? I want to talk about your book, False Prophet, as well. But can you share two to three experiences? that you cover in the book. I can only imagine how our listeners will enjoy enjoying your interview and those who listen to it in the archives. Listen to your how you explore, and you seem to be this free spirit. But if you can share two to three key experiences that you cover in your book from your visit to Basa, and where is that? Well, <clears throat> Basa is a little village that's directly east of Kathmandu. The, Kathmandu is the capital of Nepal, biggest city in Nepal. And if you went due east um, about 100 miles or so, you might be able to find Basa. <clears throat> Excuse me. When I first started going there, there was no road uh, that got there. There is now. But so when uh, I visited Basa until the very last time, uh, a couple of years ago, we would drive to the end of the road, uh, get off, and then would walk for four days to get to the village. Or wow. you could fly to a little airstrip. There's a little air uh, port in a bigger village called Poplu, and it's a day-and-a-half walk to Basa from there. So, How many hours a day are you walking? Well, it's you know, it depends. Um, the first time I went to Basa, uh, which is described in a, a book called uh, the uh, – uh, oh, sure, my mind is blanking on the, the – Island Adventures? Uh, no, Paradise. Um uh, anyway, uh, it was in 2008, um, and the the group that started was 10, and the group that actually made it to Basso was 3. And all sorts of things went wrong. Um, you, you know, people, uh, two of our, our, three of our members actually didn't get on the flight to Kathmandu, and then along the way, we lost uh, four more members who got hurt or got sick or just wanted to quit because we had planned to fly to Poplu, but we couldn't because a plane had crashed and they shut down the airport 
and so we had to drive and then walk and we were way behind schedule so we were walking we were doing 12 hour days and it was just too tough for several of our members um but three of us three of us made it and when we got to the village every single resident and there were about 250 people waiting for us with lays um you know necklaces of flowers that they had Mm -hmm. handmade and they literally covered the three of us in flowers. Um, and we were given the most wonderful welcome I've ever experienced anywhere, anytime in my entire life. Every family wanted to host us, wanted to feed us, wanted to give us uh, their homebrew um, and we were we were treated like rock stars or you know, royalty, because I had started the year before the Basa Foundation, and our first project was to finish their little village school, which had three grades, and with with $5,000, they were able to uh, add to the building, add two more classrooms, and hire two teachers. Um, Teachers back then were paid $40 per month, um, and so <clears throat> for 5,000 bucks, we added two grades and hired two teachers and were able to pay their salary for several years out of that money. Um, it's got to be the, the best, <laughs> inve- I mean, the most far-reaching investment wow. $5,000 has ever done. Well, thank and, you. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so then wow. the, the foundation since then has grown and and we've done uh, water projects, hydroelectric projects, another school, a medical clinic, and a bunch of other smaller projects in the area. Oh my goodness! Now I got to ask you this before we talk about island adventures. You you making me want to just get get on a plane and go travel somewhere. Now you've explored islands in the mountains. Can you tell us about island adventures for those who, particularly with this? COVID and people not traveling, one thing about, a a good thing about books, you can read a book and the person's telling you about their experiences and where they traveled, and by the time you put the book down, you don't feel like you're on lockdown so much. You feel like you've gone on this journey. So can you give us an overview of Island Adventures and where are some of the places that you you visited and you talk about in the book? Sure. Um, the, The book... Uh, is a series of um, short stories, articles that were all—all all of them were published in other, in journals and magazines. Um, and so, over the years, that's a, a lot of the articles I wrote were about these travel adventures I had, and and a bunch of them were on islands around the Caribbean and the South Pacific. And uh, <clears throat> so, that it describes. Things like uh, solo kayaking in Palau, uh, which is a, a small island nation south of the Philippines, and uh, getting lost at night on a kayak out at sea by myself and thinking, this is not going to end well because I don't, <laughs> I, I've been paddling all day and I don't have the strength to paddle oh back to where. Because I overshot um, a uh, a docking place, and there was nowhere else to dock the kayak. But 
had this amazing, really mystical experience um, of uh, of singing and praying and chanting by myself out in the ocean. And all of a sudden, I just felt this powerful strength that I could paddle for another 12 hours if I had to and paddled around the uh, side of this island uh, that, you know, was impassable up to the the dock where I could uh, put up my tent and sleep for the night. And uh, as I rounded this, uh, the corner of the island to come into this little uh, bay or inlet, the, the sky had been completely dark clouds had covered, blocked out the moon, blocked out the stars, and all of a sudden it was like a curtain was drawn, and the moon was so bright, the stars were bright, and it just lit up this bay um, in this wonderful, sort of beautiful, welcoming sense that I was safely there. And uh, so that's, you know, that's one of the many experiences. Wow, man, you got is it? Oh my gosh! You have to. These are things you have to do to get these experiences. Oh my goodness! I am just so in awe of you to travel and to, you just you don't talk yourself out of stuff. It seems like you go ahead and you do what it is that you want to do. Now between the mountains and the islands, I got to ask you which place you just you just described a wonderful experience. You were lost. You start singing and praying, and you feel this empowerment coming in from your inner self. But between all your, your adventures, which place was easier for you to unwind and to find peace in? And, and why do you think this place had that had that effect on you? Yeah, that's really hard to choose because up in the mountains, it's just so the majestic, the, majestic beauty of the mountains is so moving that you know you just look all around and these gorgeous white peaks are there but uh, on an island when you know as long as it's not storming the lapping of the waves on a sandy beach and looking out over this vast ocean is so calming so I would say probably um, my experience in islands in terms of that calmness and serenity, that, that's where I found that. And, the, and that the book, Island Adventures, <clears throat> um, uh, and the, the subtitle is Disconnecting, uh, Disconnecting from you know, Modern Busy Life <clears throat> and Getting Away from your your normal sort of overstimulated life um, and how I've experienced that on islands um, because there's something about an island, you know, it's, it's all self-contained, you know, everything you need is there and yet it's isolated from the rest of the world. And uh, <clears throat> it's just, there's something serene and beautiful about that. That's always appealed to me. So when I wasn't going up into the mountains uh, and I could get away, I would go and disconnect <clears throat> on an island. Um, one of the stories in that book is about uh, doing nothing, where one time I went to this 
uh, island in the uh, French Polynesia that's uh, had only a, a handful of people living on it and just to spend time. And my goal was to spend a week where there was nothing, literally nothing to do um, except eat and sleep, swim, snorkel. And that turned out to be very challenging. I mean, I found myself, you know, wanting to do things, wanting to have activities, but I was determined to experience just a week of meditation and being by myself. And uh, it, it turned, it became wonderful. But at first, the first couple of days where it was quite difficult just to, as I say in the subtitle, to disconnect. But eventually wow, you know it what? took a while and I found it. You're giving me an idea, and that's, I'm, I was thinking about something coming up, like, what am I going to do? I may try what you tried for a week and see see what happens. Um, before we talk about false prophet, one, one last question. Did you really look a well in the eye in Tonka? Were you scared, or what was that experience like? Were you in the ocean? Did that really happen? Yeah. In fact, that was another almost well, I wouldn't say almost, I would say mystical experience. Um, I was on a, <clears throat> with a group where we were going whale watching and uh, some other <laughs> guys I had met uh, came up on a small speedboat and said, you know, we're going we're gonna to actually swim with the whales if we can. You want to come with us? So I jumped off the, <laughs> the <laughs> whale watching boat onto their boat and we would, there was a, 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 a father, a mother, and a little calf, baby whale, in the area. So we would chase them, jump out of the boat with our fins and snorkel and mask, and try to swim over to the whales. And the, the male, the father, eventually just took off. So there was just the mother and the calf. And what they would do, it was like they were playing tag with us they would wait for us but then as we got closer they would swim away and we did this five or six times um the and then the boat captain said okay this is the last time we're low on fuel so the there were four of us four of us dive in <clears throat> start swimming the other three guys tired out but because I had been a competitive swimmer, I guess I had a little more endurance. I kept going, and after about 200 more yards, the mama and baby just stopped. And I swam right up to them. The mother, this huge eye, was just looking at me. Wow. Threw my mask, looked right into her eye, and then oh she... Gosh. She moved her fin. The baby was on the other side. She, like, caressed her baby with her fin. The baby swam under her, and the baby came right up to me and let me pet it. And, of oh course, the baby was, was, was longer than me. Um, but so I got to touch the baby and look into the one. And then after about five minutes, with one big flap of her tail and with her baby kind of tucked under her fin, she took off. Oh, my so. goodness. See? Oh, my gosh. Like a Robert, was it Robert Crusoe or what his name was? 
on on off the shelf. Now I want to ask you. We're coming down to the home stretch in today's interview, and what a, what a treat you have been. Uh, the, where did you get the idea for the book False Prophet? Where did the idea for that book come from? Well, it's a novel, but it was inspired by a case I had as a lawyer. Um, there was a, an inner city uh, African American preacher who had a dream of taking this little cinder block church he had and eventually turning it into a big cathedral with a youth center and a community center. And he had this beautiful vision. And over 25 years, he'd been acquiring slowly but surely all the vacant properties and rundown houses uh, in this really blighted neighborhood and to try to fulfill his vision. And all of a sudden, the vision was dashed because our local newspaper, the Indianapolis Star, did a story, big uh, feature story about him, calling him a slumlord, um, and really, uh, really trashing his reputation. And what turned out <clears throat> was that the city and the federal government and, a, and several uh, major real estate developers in the area had gotten together and decided to develop that area and build uh, townhouses and condos and bring in yuppies. Uh, and they had this big vision for the area, and he was standing in their way. So the, all of a sudden the story was done, uh, and then he had never had any trouble with the tax authorities, and all of a sudden he's got liens, the, the wow. state tax is alleging that all these properties were not being used for church mm-hmm. purposes, and they're hitting him with thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in tax liens. And so I represented him, tried to fight this battle. Uh, we lost. I took it all the way up to the Indiana Supreme Court. We lost. We did get tax relief for him. But he eventually gave up, and uh, the properties were sold or sold off. And that was so upsetting, I decided to write a a novel based on sort of with him as a character, only it turns out right instead of wrong in the end, which is a wonderful thing about fiction. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you you can change reality. Yes, can you yeah. introduce us to Jack Ross? What what is he like? And I'm assuming he's the he's the preacher. But what what is Jack Ross like? But Jack Ross is actually the his lawyer. Um, oh, the, okay. Yeah, the the preacher, Elder Brown, um, Jack, and he developed this really, I think, wonderful relationship because they they're very different. Jack is an atheist or an agnostic. Um, he was the star litigator in a big um, downtown Indianapolis silk stocking law firm, but ends up leaving the firm because uh, his best friend got kicked out of the firm. And so out of loyalty to his best friend, he leaves. And then the two of them are like bottom feeders in the legal world. 
scrapping and struggling to make a living, taking any case they can get. And, uh, you know, their lives have changed from being at the top to being at the bottom, at least of the law profession. And uh, Reverend Brown comes into their office one day with this case because he's been defamed by the Indianapolis Star and wants help. And that's where their relationship starts. Oh, and who is Clevens Clevon Saunders, and how do Jack and Clevon get to know each other? Well, Clevon was a young black attorney who had been working under Jack in the big law firm, and they had become good friends. Jack was his mentor, but. Uh, unfortunately, it turns out the big law firm is going to represent the Indianapolis Star. So they're now on opposite sides in this case. And Clevin is really torn because he feels like he owes Jack for having sort of met, for, men, for having mentored him. But on the other hand, he's ambitious and wants to rise up within the firm. And um, so they have this conflict and then Jack's mentor within the firm is the head attorney uh, on the other side of the case. So there's also that conflict of, uh, you know, loyalty. And it turns out Jack's mentor is actually a real son of a bitch. (laughs) 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 Sort of, you know, when you imagine the, you know, dirty, conniving sort of attorney who will do anything to win, well, that's that guy. Uh, And and then, unfortunately, the case is originally filed in Indianapolis where Jack thinks he's going to get a a jury that will be mixed, have black folks, white folks on it, and, you know, he'll get a fair shake. It gets venued out into a rural county with a crusty old judge who seems like he's probably a racist, and this is the guy Jack has to convince uh, that he's on the right side. Oh so my there's God. another this book challenging. Sounds so really. good. Oh my gosh, it sounds so good. When you first start thinking the title "False Prophet," I think it's a a, a, a pastor or somebody who's just gone so wrong. But this sounds so good. What have readers been saying about "False Prophet"? Well, the, the readers who are into, um, you know, legal thrillers uh, have been complimentary. I mean, you know, John Grisham is the king of that genre. And I have to admit, uh, I've, I've admired Grisham. I also think there's some problems with his style. But anyway, uh, he was certainly influential in the way I approached uh, the book because I, I wanted to show – uh, sort of the full range of what it's like being a big city attorney. There's, you know, the bottom feeders and the elite silk stocking big firms. <clears throat> and then the, I, I think readers have found um, the character of the preacher really poignant. I mean, he's, you know, he has this beautiful vision that's, that's uh, in jeopardy Um and then there's also there's a an arson and a murder mystery that 
are worked in woven into the narrative so it's a it's a mystery has a surprising but you know fulfilling ending um so you know the people who like legal thrillers and mysteries and crime dramas uh relate to the book okay um I have to ask you, what type of writing process do you follow? Do you do you work with outlines? Do you do character sketches? How do you start to flesh out a novel? Yeah, it, it's really, I don't have one method. Uh, the process has been different, uh, especially for the novels. The, the, the fiction is usually like both of the the ones we've talked about um, were inspired by a, an experience or a character that just sort of took off in my mind. Um, the nonfiction, I've tended to follow a more traditional process of having a central theme that I wanted to develop, and then I, I've usually either done an outline or at least you know, sort of written out um, the way I see the book developing. Um, and then, you know, just sat down and wrote page after page. I tend to be very uh, programmatic in terms of starting on page one, working my way to the end, um, not skipping around or skipping ahead. Um, you know, not doing a character sketch, but just having the, the character develop as the story develops. So okay. that's, yeah, so kind of, in a way it sounds kind of messy, but uh, it's worked. Yeah, you, get, you, you still get it, get, get done what you set out to do. Can you share three to four steps that you found to be effective at getting the word out about your stories and your books? Well, um, I would say I haven't been as effective in doing that uh, as, a, as more successful authors have been. Um, my first uh, full book, which was Bringing Progress to Paradise, the one I couldn't remember the title to, was published with a traditional publisher um, and I didn't have an agent. I just submitted directly to the publisher, and they liked the idea, so they took it, and I worked with the, um, the editor. Um, so that was pretty lucky. And But then I was sort of disappointed with the way they marketed the book, and, uh, and, and then right after that, and so this is we're back in 2010, the... Amazon KDP method of direct publishing came out and my wife who's actually a much more successful writer than me she's she's done 27 books and wow. uh, had many historical novels and some writing craft books published by traditional publishers we both thought wouldn't it be cool to try out this uh, Amazon KDP thing and I had False Prophet uh, done. So there's a, a finished manuscript. And so we spent two days, I mean, hours and hours trying to figure out <laughs> how to self-publish or direct publish that book. But 
we eventually got it done and I, I since re revised and polished it more. So there's a, this is a, the one that's available now is actually a second version of it, but we, we figured out how to do it and have even since then we started our own little company midsummer books and have worked with a whole bunch of other authors to help them go through successfully that same process and so i'm i'm kind of circling a long way around your question but the marketing part of it i've never been in love with that and so i you know i have something of a social media platform i make my books known when they come out through that i do what we're doing right now um i've been the guest on over a hundred radio shows and podcasts um over the years which I, I love doing this i mean i love talking with people like you denise and uh so I've, I've given talks uh, in Goal Civic and church groups uh, in Indianapolis and Chicago. But the one thing I haven't really done that I, I think I should is to uh, use Amazon, Facebook, Twitter advertising. And so this last book, uh, Anarchist, Republican, Assassin, I finally decided I'm going to do that and buy some ads on the social media to promote that book. And guess what? All of the social media platforms and Amazon have banned political advertising. Wow. And so when I tried to put up my ads, all of them oh. rejected the ads because this is a political book. And so I, at first I tried to fight it and I responded and I said, look, this is a novel. It's fiction. Um, yes. It's, there's a, it's kind of an anti-Trump novel, but it's fiction and they've banned it. And um, I'm right, right now I'm, I'm waiting for a reply from Amazon as to, are they going to eventually lift the ban after the whole controversy of who won the election is over, or is this a forever ban? And I'm waiting for their answer. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> maybe in the meantime, false profit. You could you could work false profit with some Amazon sponsored ads or a Facebook uh, ad. I, I actually have had some ads recently uh, uh, on my book Long Walk Up. It's not political, but the, uh, it's about an orphan who becomes a president in Africa. Just that word. <laughs> I had to re, 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 redo it uh, so I could get it get get it through. Um, we're out of time. Got to ask you this, definitely, definitely. Where can off the shelf listeners get copies of your books? Well, they're all available through Amazon or through my website, which you mentioned at the beginning, J E F F R E Y R A S L E Y dot com. So. Uh, go to the website or just or even just Google my name and you'll uh, find my page on Amazon. Oh, what a treat. What a treat. Oh, my goodness. I know off the shelf listeners enjoy, enjoy Jeff Rosley today. Again, his website is J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-R-A-S-L-E-Y.com. You guys got to check out his books and his travel adventures. He was an attorney and he's novel writing and 
doing all this traveling, and oh my goodness. So I want to thank Jeff Rosley for being here with us this morning, and some of his books that we talked about, Polarized Hero's Journey, Island Adventures, Bringing Progress to Paradise, False Prophet, and then the, the uh, his his latest one that he's trying to get accepted for advertisement through Amazon, Facebook, et cetera. Oh, my goodness. Um, encourage you to support him again, Jeff Rosby, R-A-S-L-E-Y, and get copies of his books. Thank you so much, Jeff. And to all of our off-the-shelf listeners, thank you for being here with us on this Saturday. Remember, you are incredible. You're phenomenal. You're amazing. Go out and create an awesome day for yourself today. Jeff, I'll shoot you an email with a link to the show when it finishes streaming. Thank you again. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Denise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.